everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 28, and I'm going to talk to you about a new product out on the market made from hemp wood. Yes, it's called hemp wood, very creatively. But before I get to that, I've got a bunch of other stuff coming in from some industry updates, a little bit of feedback, and some emails to answer. We're going to be talking a little bit more about plywood this week, kind of why it doesn't fall apart, and what happens when you've got bugs in your plywood. But first, I want to give a little bit of feedback from Charles. He said it's not quite a question, but more of a follow-up on slabs. I moved from Louisville a couple of years ago, and I had a choice between three one-person sawmills within 45 miles that had a wide variety of hardwoods dried and ready to go. I now live in Atlanta, and there are only one or two single-person sawmills within 100 miles. There is a decent commercial lumberyard about 20 miles away. Part of this is due to the more limited selection of trees to mill further south. However, despite the scant availability of rough-cut hardwood, there are slabs all over Facebook Marketplace. Tons. Many of them wood from wood that I don't find that interesting for slabs. <laughs> Looks like the supply is way out distancing the demand around here. Thank you, Charles, for saying that because I've noticed the same thing. Slabs used to be really interesting, you know, cool figure or, you know, this great crotch grain or something. Now it's just like regular old wood. And it's like, wouldn't it just be better to have sawn that into boards or they through sawed it and then just didn't bother to cut off the bark and cut it into boards. So in other words, it ought to be cheaper per board foot because there's less work being gone into it. And this goes back to my prediction before that the market is dying off. And what we're going to see is those slabs being cut up into narrower boards, or they're going to just, the bottom's going to fall out and they're going to go back to normal pricing. So Charles, if you're listening to this, I would love for you to write back in because you brought up a couple of points in there about finding these one person kind of ma and pa sawmills. How do you find them? I know a lot of people who are really curious about this and I've got some of my own kind of ways that I would look for it, but I'm really curious, especially since you just recently moved and you were used to buying from these one person sawmills and then you moved uh, far away. Well, not super far away, but you get the idea into a new neighborhood and yet you still found some sawmills. How are you finding them? What is your source for locating them? And if you would write in and, and share, I'm sure it would be really useful to a lot of folks listening to this. So thanks for the feedback, Charles. I appreciate it. Always nice to have some affirmation on my predictions there. So um, Matt shared this article from the New York Times Magazine on the American chestnut. I've spoken in the past about the chestnut blight. I've also spoken about genetic engineering in woods that could actually um, do away with some of the blights. This is a fantastic article. It's quite long, actually, but what I really like about it is it gives a really in-depth story about the American chestnut blight, where it came from, and it was, it was an Asian bug, and it was believed to be introduced through New York City. And it was funny because I'm reading this, and I'm, here we are in quarantine during the coronavirus outbreak, and you know, you turn on the news, and it's like, yeah, it came from you know the Far East and probably was introduced through New York City, and of course, New York City's got hit really bad right now. It's like, wait a minute, what are we talking about here? It was it just kind of hit home as we were talking about this, as I was reading this rather. More importantly, there was some great 
kind of firsthand and secondhand accounts of what the chestnut forests were like before the blight and the culture that surrounded the chestnut tree. It was so prevalent that it actually was a subculture in and of itself. I mean, the whole Christmas song, chestnuts roasting over an open fire, was legit. And there were farmers that actually could make their living just on chestnuts alone. Really fascinating to hear the history of this and just to really get a grasp of the whole left from the dying off of the chestnut. It then goes on to talk about genetic engineering in the chestnut. And this is a long, a story, long time in the making to the point where there was a new genetically engineered version of the chestnut that has been tested and really is ready to be released into the wild. And now it comes down to politics. There's a lot of people who are staunchly against genetic engineering because, well, we all saw Jurassic Park, right? <laughs> what is it Dr. Malcolm says? Nature finds a way and suddenly all female dinosaurs are breeding? You know, that's that's the fear with genetic engineering is we can't even anticipate what it might do. You know, you introduce this, quote, super tree into the wild. What's going to happen to all the oaks and the maples? Maybe nothing, you know? So they're doing some testing to the best of their ability, but it's it's... I don't know. I'm not sure where I fall on this. Reading this article, I feel like they've done the testing and they could reintroduce the tree that is now resistant to the original blight. But what do I know, right? I'm certainly not a botanist. Um, I'd have to read a lot more into the testing they've done and probably have a PhD to be able to speak definitively. But in the end, you know, in the U.S., there's like three different agencies, Fish and Wildlife, FDA, because, of course, chestnuts are, are you know, the fruit is, is edible, uh, as well as Department of Agriculture. There's probably several other uh, government agencies that would have to sign off on this and say it's OK to do it. And we all know who politicians are. The chance that it could go wrong means that they're never going to go for it. So it's kind of sad, but. I definitely recommend reading this article, if nothing for just the first half, and reading the historical accounts of what life was like before the chestnut died off. Um, Makes you a little bit sad, but at the same time, very nostalgic. So thank you so much, Matt, for sharing this. I had not seen this article, and it was really, really good. I appreciate that. So I want to jump in emails real quick and discuss some of the stuff that's on you guys' mind. And you know, while we're talking about that, I love getting email from you guys and getting voicemail from you guys. I love to know what's on your mind. I think I've said this before, but I work in the lumber industry day in and day out. So there's a lot of things that maybe come across my desk or run across my mind or things that I write about just in the day-to-day life of a marketing director of a lumber company that I don't really think to mention. And then I get an email from you guys and it's like, oh, that's a good show topic. So a lot of times I'm just too close to it. So I definitely want to hear from you. And I'm saying this because while I do have a backlog of emails, I've noticed that backlog of emails is starting to get a little short. So I definitely want to hear from you. Make sure you send in your emails. You can hit me with a question on Instagram. You can go to lumberupdate.com. There's a form you can fill out there, or you can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to lumberupdate at gmail.com. Or just send me an email. Skip the whole form on the website and just send me an email at lumberupdate at gmail.com. I want to know what's on your mind. I want to know what your questions are. I want to make sure I'm addressing the topics that you want to hear. This show really is for you guys. So let's make sure that I'm making it for you guys, right? So anyway, this is a question from Jason. And I like this because 
He's a mechanical engineer, so he knows what he's talking about, but he's getting all twisted up about plywood. So he says, first, love your work, both here and on Wood Talk and the Renaissance Woodworker. I'm more of a hybrid myself, but learning the hand tool stuff is just fascinating. I threw it in there in case somebody listening to the show doesn't realize that I also have another podcast called Wood Talk and a video show YouTube channel called the Renaissance Woodworker and a school called the Hand Tool School. In case you're new to this and you just want to look at my other stuff, it's out there. Anyway, Jason goes on and says, considering wood movement, why isn't plywood a problem? How do the interior layers not split from wood movement? My hypothesis is the longitudinal strength of the longitudinal veneers is so much stronger than the contraction force of the transverse veneers. It just holds it in place. But doesn't this substantially weaken the panel? If some of the tensile strength is being used to hold the panel together, shouldn't three-quarter inch plywood be enormously weaker than three-quarter inch lumber of the same species? Since some of the strength is lost by approximately half of the thickness, since half the plies run one way, half the run the other way, some of the strength must be lost in holding that panel together. If you can't tell, I'm a mechanical engineer and I'm either overcomplicating this or missing something fundamental. Anyway, please keep it up. Please unquit Wood Talk. <laughs> so you could tell when that email came in because we unquit Wood Talk, what, two, three months ago now? So there you go, Jason. We unquit for you. And uh, any other requests, maybe you can predict those as well. So why doesn't plywood fall apart? The, the easiest answer is, the veneers themselves are so thin that they really don't exert that much force when it comes to expansion and contraction. It's the same reason that veneer um, on on like a desktop doesn't really, if it splits, it's not the veneer causing, it's the solid wood underneath. And you go back to the 18th century, they used solid wood underneath the veneer. These days, we use a more stable substrate like an MDF or a plywood underneath our veneer so that the the substrate doesn't tear the veneer apart. In the olden days, and some people realize this in olden days, and they would actually make solid wood, what we would today would call blockboard panels, solid wood staves as your core, so the movement was kind of sort of controlled a little bit that way. But the veneer itself doesn't really exert any force on the expansion and contraction because it's just so thin. Remember, wood movement is a percentage game. If the tangential movement of cherry is 6%, well, 6% of 12 inches is a very different number than 6% of two inches. Now think about the thickness side of things. If you know one inch thick exerts a certain amount of force, if one-tenth or one-twentieth of an inch, it's gonna exert a much, much smaller force. So granted, we're talking about, you know, wood is anisotropic, so it's not moving the same in every direction. So depending on what that veneer is, if it's a rift face on the plywood or flat sawn on the plywood or a quartered face, it's going to exert that force a little bit differently. But really, it's almost negligible because the, the veneers in commercial plywood are so thin. Hell, even the veneers in like shop made plywood or some of the specific, uh, uh, thicker face veneer plywood that's used for flooring and things like that, like um, commercial, uh, excuse me, engineered floor. They use sometimes uh, three sixteenths or even I've seen um, three eighths of an inch thick veneer on top. That stuff does exert some movement, but it's 
quite small. In the case of the engineered floor, you're talking about smaller planks. You're not talking four by eight sheets. You're talking four inch or two inch wide boards. So again, that you could use a three eighths inch thick veneer on top of plywood and not worry too much about the veneer itself splitting because even though three eighths is more substantial than one twentieth of an inch, that flooring board is only two and a half to three inches wide. With a four by eight sheet of plywood, most of those veneers are about a 20th of an inch thick. And there is a hell of a lot of glue in plywood. So I can't remember, oh man, I should have looked this up. The weight of a sheet of plywood, a four by eight sheet of plywood, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm making up this number, but it's close to half the weight is in glue. It's a lot of glue in there. And that glue is quite rigid. Now, it depends upon the, the panel you're buying, the manufacturer you're buying, but a lot of people have fallen into this soy-based glue that Columbia Forest Products started using back when CARB-1 came on the market and then CARB-2 um, reinforced. CARB is the California Air Resource uh, Board, which if you go back a couple of episodes, that has now been taken over by TOSCA Title IV. The Toxic Substance Control Act has really superseded CARB and it's now nationwide. There is actually an episode on TOSCA somewhere in the back archives i should i should know there's only 29 shows but i can't remember it's tosca title six title six title four now i can't even remember my own my own facts anymore see this is what happens i'm losing my mind slowly but surely but the fact of the matter is is that soy-based glue dries quite rigid And, you know, the more rigid it is, obviously, the more brittle it can be. But at the same time, when it locks those transverse plies into that kind of matrix, the whole thing is really, really stable. And that's not to say that there isn't some movement with plywood, because we've seen plywood cup, right? We talk about that panel turned into a potato chip. That is not because of... Well, it is because of wood movement, but not because of seasonal changes in wood movement. It's because the, the veneers themselves were not dried properly. I've often talked about how in plywood especially, you get what you pay for. And if one panel is $60 and another panel is $40, some corner was cut somewhere in order to make that panel $20 cheaper. And cutting corners has such a negative connotation to it. It could be cut very legitimately because somebody was looking for that price point or didn't need that fancier veneer or any number of reasons in the production process. But a lot of times it's the quality of the veneer and how much care and attention was put into preparing that veneer. And yes, even really, really thin material can still hold a lot of moisture in it. It still needs to be dried, at least dried uniformly and dried to an equilibrium moisture content. And when that stuff is not dried, and actually more often than not, it's it's ultra dry. It's drier than normal because the glue itself injects more moisture into that matrix and it can cause things to warp at that point. So yes, there is movement, but it's more residual based upon coming into equilibrium. The other thing here, Jason talks about, you know, if some of the force is being used just to hold the panel together, why isn't it weaker than solid wood? Well, Jason, who told you plywood was stronger than solid wood? Plywood is actually, or excuse me, solid wood is actually close to 20 times stronger than plywood of equal thickness. If you take a three quarter inch sheet of plywood and a three quarter inch sheet of a three quarter inch piece of solid wood, we're talking about a differential of about 20 times. The bending strength is really what we're talking about. And if we were to look at an absolute number and say that, um, you know, the the, the uh, ordinary wood, just regular um, solid wood, hardwood, 
even you could even say softwood. Um, say it, we'll just put it one in the spectrum and say it has a, a rating of 100 for bending strength. You're looking at the kind of shop plywood, typical three ply plywood is like a, a rating of 82 or 80 maybe. And this is coming straight out of a forest products laboratory, um, structural design value book. So 82. So that's like, that's not 20, that's 20%, excuse me, not 20 times. Um, then, you know, we, you look at the, um, the stiffness side of things and you're going to find that three ply plywood, three quarter inch thick is going to be like 46 on the stiffness, whereas solid wood would be 100. Again, these are arbitrary numbers. We're not actually applying it to a specific unit because it would vary from species to species. But plywood is not stronger than solid wood, not even close. Why plywood is important is because plywood can be made into four by eight sheets. And where solid wood is really weak, the grain lengthwise of that bending strength of 100 is along the grain, the longitudinal direction of those fibers, that 100 score drops to about eight when you go crossways. That's why like when you see these karate demonstrations, you see the guy break the board, look at the board. Did he actually break it along the grain or did he just break it across the grain? Because I can snap a board in half <laughs> with my bare hands really easily even if it's across the grain because that's the weakness of the board. It's not as weak when you get into a three inch wide board or a six inch wide board, but pick up like a 24 inch wide panel. You can easily just kind of not even no dynamic force at all. Just kind of slowly bend it over your knee and it will snap with very little force. Even a 12 inch board will do that. Now imagine a 48 inch wide solid board. First of all, it's probably going to split and crack apart all on its own as it comes into equilibrium moisture content. Plywood will not. That is the advantage of plywood. Plywood is not really a structural member used to span distances. It gets skinned over top of a substructure. And it's that structure that if you're building stick frame, it's solid wood that's forming that structure, that's forming the joists or the studs. Granted, we're talking wallboard, but you know, still sheathing on the outside of a building that is, is being used just because it covers a large surface. It must have that structure underneath it in order to be considered strong. Now, when it is all screwed in place and you take a stud wall and you screw sheathing to it, that entire structure, including the stud frame underneath and the outer sheathing becomes ridiculously strong because the plywood creates that anti-racking force and it ties that whole system together. Now, if you were to take plywood and continually stack it thicker, 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 and thicker, it does get quite a bit stronger while maintaining um, a high level of stability. And there are one inch thick, two inch, even three inch thick plywood um, products out there. There's also something called LVL. Those laminated timbers use the same principle and those get super thick, you know, eight inch, 12 inches, et cetera. And that becomes kind of where things come into to equal numbers where solid wood and plywood become the same, if not plywood becoming that much stronger. Because again, all those transverse fibers um, and all that glue, plus it's put together under immense heat and pressure, ends up being a very, very strong product. But that's an LVL thing. That's a you know laminated timber thing. The typical sheathing three quarter inch thick plywood and thinner, no, not even close to as strong as solid wood. So yes, you're probably right. You're the engineer, right? There is strength lost in just holding the panel together. But I wouldn't get too caught up in that because again, to begin with the force that that, that 
movement is creating is much less than you might think it is. And generally, the glue is strong enough to resist those forces. Okay, next question. This one comes from Omer, who has bugs in his plywood. He says, hi, Shannon. Thanks for the great podcasts. Plural, I like that. During the last year, I bought a bunch of plywood from a lumberyard and used it to build some built-ins. Each time I bought the amount I needed to build one built-in. A few months ago, we started seeing some fine dust below one of the built-ins. Being from another country where termites are almost a non-issue, we were sure it was termites and we were afraid they were all over our home. We ended up getting a termite inspection. The inspector is absolutely sure these are not termites. However, he cannot identify these bugs. He also was not able to find them anywhere else besides this specific location in the house, and that led him to say that he's absolutely sure that the bugs came from the plywood. My question is, is it justified to ask the yard for a refund? While I understand that they cannot control every sheet of plywood and that the wood is always exposed and is not stored in a sealed bag, I did end up getting a defective product, which may end in me having to fumigate my house and for sure ended up with me tearing apart the entire thing and throwing it away. Sorry for the long question, but I would really appreciate an answer and I'm pretty sure that I'm not the first person to encounter this issue. And the answer will be relevant to many people. Thank you again. Thank you for the question, Omar. Um, Here's the thing. Um, Easy answer, yes, I think you should contact the yard. If for no other reason than to let them know this was an issue so that they can investigate it on their own end. Um, If one panel had bugs in it, how many more have bugs in it? They really need to know that. They need to get an inspector out there. um, And they also need to check with their, um, their supplier because local yards are not manufacturing plywood. Plywood is manufactured in ginormous buildings that can be seen from space, you know? So somebody sold that to them. They need to go back to their manufacturer and there needs to be some checking of this. The good news, plywood is um, stamped and generally it can be tracked down to production run. Now, if you have some of that plywood, it would be really beneficial to take it to them. Although the stamps may be gone, they at least may be able to track your invoices, things like that, be able to figure out where that plywood came from. Now, as a rule of thumb, once you actually actually start cutting into the wood, a lot of yards won't exchange or refund anything because they can't do anything with the product that comes back. But good yards will give you a replacement product and they don't want the product back because what are they going to do with it? They're just going to throw it out, Um, especially if it's got bugs in it. They don't want it in their yard. They'll leave it up to you to dispose of it. But this is the, the dogma, much is lost for one of asking. I don't know when this was. And honestly, I can't remember when this question came in. But it is worth a call. As I said, they will probably, if it's a good business, they're going to try to do right by you. You know, you've already torn the stuff out. They may be able to provide replacement sheets so that you can at least build the built-ins again. But if for no other reason, just as a public service to the yard and to their customers and to their supplier, they need to know that this was an issue, you know, and if you've got anything that your inspector can maybe put in writing to add a little validity to this, to show that, you know, hey, I did have this checked out because the first thing you're going to say is, hey, how do we know it was your plywood? You might want to have it checked out. Well, you did. You did the ground, the, the homework, if you will. And I think I know if it were my yard, I would definitely want to know. And I would immediately be on the phone with my plywood supplier and saying, hey, whoa, what's going on here? We need to track this down because how many other people have we sold this material to that could be a potential problem? Now, it's interesting that the inspector couldn't identify the bug. I'd be really curious to find out if you actually found bugs like 
visually saw a bug and he could, you know, it seems to me he could look at it or take a picture of it or take a sample of the bug and give it to somebody who would be able to know those guys would know. So I don't know, that's a whole other issue, but I would most definitely contact that yard. And, you know, if you're going into it in the right frame of mind, not necessarily showing up, you know, hopping mad, like, how dare you? And I'm going to call a lawyer because that immediately gets everybody to clam up, but just say, look, this is concerning. Like, I had to have this checked. I'm probably going to have to have my house fumigated. Not to mention the material that I bought, I I basically had to destroy it. You know, more than likely they're going to want to do the right thing. And if they don't, and they're like, what do you want us to do about it? That's when you say, well, I'd least like you to replace the plywood. Because what are we talking here? You know, you're not talking an entire bunk of plywood. You're talking four or five sheets, maybe. Um, Really, to most lumber yards, they ought to be able to do the right thing with their customers. And if they don't, then consider not using that lumber yard anymore, but at least their suppliers know. And if nothing else, write a review or something online. If they're not going to do right by you, write a review and say, look, I bought defective material for anybody buying plywood from these folks. Make sure you have it checked out. It's got to be, um, it's got to help somebody else down the road. So great question. Thank you for writing in about that. Next one comes from Aaron. Um, he actually hit me up on Instagram and he said, real simple, why are two by four corners rounded? Um, he, had, he had some more, basically he had some thoughts on it and he's basically right. But here's the thing. Two by fours are created in one pass through a molder. So a lot of woodworkers, we've got a planer, we've got a joiner, you know, we joint that one face and then we'll joint the 90 degree face. Or in my shop, you grab a hand plane and do the same thing. You know, then you run it through a planer and you get a parallel face on the planer. In a a softwood company that's actually producing studs, they're taking a rough stick, rough sawn board, and they're shoving it in one end of the joiner and out the other end comes a perfectly formed two by four. There are multiple cutter heads at play there. One is cutting the uh, the back face. The other one's cutting the front face. One's cutting the bottom edge. The other one's cutting the top edge. And there are other cutters that are coming in and cutting the rounded edges. A stud is a product that we call S4S. We're pretty much all familiar with that term, surface on four sides, but a stud is an S4S E4E product. Surface on four sides, eased on four edges. Most decking is sold the same way. Decking S4S E4E, if you've ever seen that term. Studs are specifically done this way because A, that perfect 90 degree corner is sharp. And that perfect 90 degree corner is also going to splinter. It is a weak point that's going to splinter. So as trim carpenters and things are not trim carpenters as house carpenters and things are grabbing these studs and literally throwing them up as fast as they can they are destroying those edges every time they pick one up they're probably splintering edge you know hopefully they got work gloves on because if they don't they're also cutting their hands open on those sharp edges so they're automatically rounded over to prevent that splintering from happening. Here's the other thing. Studs are not treated nicely. Why do they need to be treated nicely? They get covered up by sheetrock and other kinds of sheathing. So they are slammed around and bundled and packed together. And when you pack together a bunch of studs, if you have direct right angle corners, it can be difficult to get them all packed together neatly. If there's any deviation whatsoever, those sharp corners will actually prevent a pack from being tight to uh, tied up bundled tightly. Rounding the corners means that they nestle together a lot tighter. And then a steel band can be run around them. That steel band adheres to the round corners. If those rounded corners weren't there, that steel band would cut into the corners, destroy the corners, and create a rounded corner just by compression. So, you know, maybe at one point, I think at one point they did have straight corners. At most point, um, long enough ago, the studs were actually rough sawn. They weren't surfaced at all. And they were a full two inches and a full four 
four inches because they were rough sawn that way. It wasn't until later that we started actually milling them down to their one and three quarter by, well, one and a half really by three and a half. Um, probably for a while they were actually square. I think I remember reading that at one point and then people saw how much damage was happening every time they were bundled and shipped around and moved around. Just think about the average stack of two by fours at Home Depot and you go in and you know we're looking for that straight stud and we throw seven or eight or nine or 20 of them out of the way just to get to the straight one. And usually that straight one's on the bottom, which means as soon as you pull it out, it warps like a potato chip because it was actually being held flat by compression. But that's a whole other issue. Those rounded corners were there not only to prevent splintering, to prevent a weaker product, but also to make it easier for packing and shipping. You can stack them all together tighter. You can run just a steel band around it. And by compression, it keeps the studs in the center of the pack from sliding out. If you have just a little bit of a corner interfering, you can have a loose section in the center of the pack. When you pick the whole pack up and if it gets tilted one way or another, the center of that pack can slide right out. So some of it is packaging. A lot of it is really just strength and and stability and to prevent splintering in those studs. So there we go. Another very long answer for what should be a simple question. (laughs) That's what Lumber Update's all about, right? Convoluted answers about simple topics. Finally, this brings me to a question from Sean, and it's kind of the the highlight of, of this episode. Well, hopefully future episodes too. Sean asked me if I knew anything about hemp wood and what my thoughts were on it. So first and foremost, what is hemp wood? Well, what is hemp? Hemp, as a lot of people probably know, is the plant that cannabis sativa is one of the plants that cannabis sativa is coming from. Hemp is one of the strongest plants known to man. Hemp goes back thousands of years. The Egyptians were using it to make rope. To this day, hemp is still used to make rope. Those, the fibers longitudinally are ridiculously strong. I don't have numbers on that. You just get a lot of superlative words about how strong it is. The fact that it's been used in things like making ropes for many, many years is a, is a good indication. When you strip those plants down and you pull out the individual fibers and then weave them together, you get really, really strong um, products. So what is happening? Hempwood is produced by a company, cool name, Fibonacci Company in Kentucky. And they have taken, stripped all those down into individual fiber, fiber strands and then aligned them like the fibers, like the, the bundle of straws would grow in a tree. They use the fancy name biomimicry to do that. And they're essentially taking the same structural details of a tree and organizing these individual fibers like a big puzzle to make it look like an oak tree. They cite oak a lot um, as as a strength comparison to the point where, well, then they apply a bunch of resin, they press the whole thing together, and it's made very much like an MDF or particle board, or more appropriately, I would say more an OSB, an oriented strand board, where those individual chips are oriented longitudinally to provide a, a stronger Um, panel for subflooring and things like this. This goes one step further in the fact that all the strands are oriented longitudinally, just like they would be in solid wood, glued together into this matrix, milled up into a board. Right now, they are selling um, a variety of thicknesses, one quarter, half, three quarter, and a full four quarter by five and a quarter by four feet long. Those are the boards that they, they have, the variety of thicknesses, but the widths are all five and a quarter and the lengths are all 48 inches long. They are also now making five and a quarter by five and a quarter timbers, but again, they're only 48 inches long. So the company is still quite new and I'm sure they're still working out some manufacturing and there's still some proof of concept going on. The big issue was as before 2014, legalized commercial farming of hemp was 
no such thing. You know, it was all illegal because of its ties to marijuana. 2014, commercialized industrial farming of hemp was legalized, if not nationally, certainly a lot of states, Kentucky being one of them. And now they've they started up making this product. So it's a relatively new product. And I still think there's a lot of, of things that need to be kind of figured out about it. They're definitely not going after a structural market. This is not being sold as a structural member. It's being sold as the same way that someone would use oak. Um, Furniture companies, they definitely are using all their offcuts and targeting wood turners at this point, selling pin blanks, ball blanks, pepper mill blanks, et cetera. So they're really going after kind of the woodworker market. And they've gotten some endorsements from local YouTube makers and building some furniture with it. To me, well, here's the other thing. They sell it in both rift face and flats on face. And they have oriented the strands. So if you're looking at the end grain of a rift board, the strands are running close to vertical or around 45 degrees. The strands are very much the same way in a rift board and you get that perfect straight grain face. Flats on board, they're actually running those strands across and you're seeing the, the little smiley face or frowny faces dependent on your mood when you look at the end grain of the board. So they have the same structure. That's that biomimicry we're talking about to make it act like solid wood. So, um, and again, they're using that same soy-based glue that I talked about earlier with plywood. So again, they are carb two compliant, non-formaldehyde, NAUF standards are all met, all that fun stuff is there. So, but here's the thing. What are the, 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 um, the features, if you will? Well, first of all, hemp is not a tree. It's a plant. <laughs> Trees are plants too. It's, it's a bush. Um, they are incredibly fast growing from seeding to harvest in six months. No tree grows that fast. Now, granted, there's a production time after that, but we're not talking multiple years for harvest. We're not talking multiple decades for a harvest like you would, you know, an oak plantation. Very, very fast growing. Getting that raw material every six months can then be turned into lumber. You know, I don't know what their production lead time is, but we'll just say a month. So very, very fast. It's not a tree. So there's zero deforestation. They're not cutting down any trees whatsoever. Moreover, every time they grow a new crop, there's more carbon sequestration. So it's ticking all the right boxes from a green product perspective. It's locking away carbon by, you know, any, any uh, fast growing plant is sucking in carbon from the atmosphere really, really fast. So that, that's a good thing. Um, that soy-based glue, again, meets all those environmental concerns of an engineer product. So you know that it can be sold in all 50 states because of the NAUF and the Tosca compliance type stuff. The technical details, they're, they're a little light on technical details right now, but they say the Janko hardness is around 2,600 pounds per square inch. So yikes, hard maple's 1,450 something. Um, that's a big deal. That's like Jatoba or Brazilian, Brazilian cherry, if you will. They also claim that the stability of it is similar to Jatoba or Jataba, depending on where you're from. And it's 20% greater than oak. Those are kind of vague numbers to me. What do they mean, stability? You know, are we talking about tangential, the TR ratio, tangential radial ratio? If that's the case, Chateau is 1.9 TR. Um, so, you know, I, that's stable, I guess. You know, something like Ipe is close to one. Ipe is almost isotropic. Um, but still, it, it when you're talking about a five and a quarter inch wide board, that's pretty stable. Um, so I, I, it's pretty good. Um, the issue that I'm seeing right now is pricing kind of up in the air. If you go directly to hempwood.com to the Fibonacci company, you can buy 
boards from them, but it's, it breaks down to about $15 a board foot for the four quarter stuff. Um, certainly cheaper, um, well, not cheaper per board foot, but cheaper if you buy thinner stuff. The um, six by six or five and a quarter by five and a quarter block, I think is like $150. I haven't done the board foot count on that, but that's expensive. Now you can go to a couple of retail lumber yards that are now distributors for this, and it seems to be about half that price. Um, well, a little less than half, anywhere from seven to eight dollars a board foot. So this is not a cheap product. This is, you know, on par with walnut on a board foot price. Again, depending on where you are in the country, could be on par with mahogany in some parts of the country. So it is most definitely expensive. But the ability to get 100% rift grain is pretty cool. You know, it's very difficult to get rifts on specifically rift boards. A lot of times you've got to buy wider boards and cut out the center cathedral in order to get rift boards. You have substantial limitations in your dimensions. There's only one size, you know, other than thickness, five and a quarter by 48 inches long. The length is a bit of a, of a problem, but if you're building furniture, that's not really an issue. They claim the moisture content is anywhere from 10 to 14%. So pretty much equilibrium. It certainly would be equilibrium in my shop here on the East Coast. You would have some more drying to do, you know, if you were in the desert or something, but I imagine as an engineer product, that would probably drop relatively quickly. So there's, there's a lot of, of unanswered questions. Questions. I have actually reached out to the people at Hempwood and invited them to come on the show because I'm particularly interested in this product and I'm really curious to see the direction they want to take and where they are in the R&D. Um, I started looking into it uh, for the company where I work at Jacobs and McIlvain. And the size limitation just means it would never fly for our commercial customers. But I'd be curious if that's a possibility. Like, are they limited by their warehouse, by their manufacturing facility right now to four foot links? Is something in the hemp plant uh, prohibiting them from doing that? I mean, I've seen pictures of hemp farms and generally they're six or seven feet tall when they harvest. Now, if you once you cut the little leafy parts off the top, maybe the good stuff is only about four inches from there. Is there a way to kind of braid it together like you would rope in order to make a longer board? Are they working on that? Lots of questions that I have. So um, folks over at Hempwood, the ball's in your court. I have certainly reached out to you. I would love to get someone on the show to talk about the product because I think it's it's really exciting. I'm excited for it. I'm interested to uh, to give it a try. I'm probably going to pick up a couple sample boards from them and and give it uh, give it a work. See how it works with hand tools and power tools and things like that. I'll have to go to the day job to use power tools, but you know you get the idea. Um, so yeah, anybody who is interested, you can look up hempwood.com. They're on Instagram and Facebook. And heck, if you want to get them on the show, start bombarding their Instagram account and saying, hey, get get back to Shannon, get on the lumber update. Uh, it could be, uh, could be, I'd like to think good for their business. So if anybody out there at Hempwood is listening, here's your call to arms. I would love to talk to you. I'd love to learn more about your product and get a little bit more information about, you know, what we as woodworkers, but also the commercial sector could be looking for in the future. Very interesting product. I love the sustainability part of it. I love the, the short lead time. Um, and from an appearance perspective, it's definitely different in a lot of ways. When I look at the pen blanks, it reminds me of like spalted tamarind that I've turned a lot and making pens and pepper mills and things. It could be 
kind of busy in the flat sawn face, um, but for small focal point items like drawer fronts, I think it would look really, really cool, which again, plays into the whole smaller dimensional sizes. I don't think I would want to make a lot of full size cabinetry out of this. I think it would be way too much, quote, figure going on on the surface and it would just look too busy. So anyway, interesting product. Hempwood, if you're listening, come on the show. I want to talk to you about it. Which brings me to my closing point for this episode. I would like to get a lot more people on the show, a lot more industry, a lot more um, lumber companies and things like that. So let's start with the stuff that's most relevant to you guys. Nominate your local lumber yard. If you patronize a lumber company that you've been using for a while, you really had a good experience with them, you like them, they're just in your backyard, right into the show, lumberupdate at gmail.com and nominate your local lumberyard. Let me know who it is. If you have a point of contact there, even better. If not, just give me the name of the company and I'll do some legwork. I'd love to start bringing some of these companies on. You guys may remember the episode I did with Bell Forest Products. It's one of my most listened to episodes. I would love to get more yards out there. If for no other reason than to give a little bit of publicity to the local lumberyard for people who come to me and say, I'm in, you know, uh, Blah, 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 Wisconsin, you know, where's near a lumber yard? I don't, I'm, I'm not a walking directory of lumber yards, but maybe if I interview somebody from Wisconsin, there's a, you know, I can say here, point to this episode of the show. We can start building a library, if you will, of online or not online of, of local lumber yards. If you've got companies that you've bought lumber from in the past, whether it's a small retail yard or any, any sources like that, I'd love to hear them. I'd love to reach out to some of these people and get them on the show and get more than just me rattling on forever and ever. Because I think there's a lot of information that we can learn about the lumber industry by bringing some additional voices in. So here's your call to action, dear listeners. Nominate your local lumber yard. Send your emails to lumberupdate at gmail.com and I will do what I can to get them on the show. That's it for me this week, folks. Again, send me your questions. Nominate your lumber yard. Go to lumberupdate.com. You can send it in there. You can email lumberupdate at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram. All kinds of ways to find me. Love to hear from you and go buy some lumber, everybody.